found a podcast where you'll hear the truth and we will praise jesus name we stand for the bible and won't back down from it although it don't bring much fame some folks will like it some will try to deny it but god's word will always stand true it's been tried in the fire still Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King. And I'm the host of the study, Donnie King. This is Monday, July the 4th, episode number 71, Justified by Works, James chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 2. On this podcast, we study the Bible according to how it was written in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew and how it was translated into English in the King James Version. In our last episode, we had a discussion with another good friend of ours, Brother Darren Wood. Brother Darren spoke regarding a topic that I believe we need to revive among our conservative churches. We went over what modesty is, why we need it, and how we know modesty when we see it. Brother Darren brought out several things, and he brought a wonderful perspective to this long-held belief of the Pentecostal and holiness people. I challenge everyone to listen to this episode, for we all need to be reminded of these things. In today's study, James deals with the faith and works debate once again. He uses Abraham and Rahab as examples for his teaching on this controversial subject. James spoke of justification through works, much to many scholars, chagrin. James tells us if we don't offend through our words, we are perfect and able to bridle our whole body. We believe you will find some pretty interesting things in this study today. Now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today, I'll turn it to the host of this podcast, our pastor, Brother Donnie King. Thank you for listening in today. We're looking forward to this study. And yes, it is July the 4th. It's Independence Day. And instead of just taking today and jumping off of our normal study and doing something American-themed, we're going to go ahead and keep going with our study in the book of James. And I think that there's going to be enough fireworks that we see right here in this reading. Don't you think so? I think it's a great idea. Okay, well, we're going to go ahead and get started today, and we're going to look at James 2 and 20 through 21 first. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? We began looking at these verses last time, and we looked a little ways into them, and we examined a couple of points about that. But first, I want to look at a few more things that we haven't discussed yet in these verses. The Greek word justified is dekaiu. Dekaiu means to justify, to make righteous, and to be freed, as we said in Romans 6 and 7, where he says, for he that is dead is freed from sin. So you can see that it means to be free, it means to be righteous, means to be justified. It comes from the Greek daiki, which means to be guilty or deserving a punishment or a penalty. It speaks of someone who was guilty and deserved to be punished for what they did. This same person was then declared righteous instead of being punished. That's what it means to be justified. James looks at justification as shared righteousness, which is similar to how Paul viewed it as well, because he spoke of being counted righteous. James believed that our works prove our faith as authentic. 
We know that our works have absolutely nothing to do with getting us saved, but they do play a huge part in us staying saved and living a good life. Jesus taught much about our need of having fruit, which is good works and good deeds. He said if we bring forth no fruit, it's because we're not connected to the vine. I want you to realize that James is not trying to fight against Paul or his teaching. James is focusing mainly on Abraham's offering of Isaac in Genesis 22 as proof of Abraham's faith. This shows us that Abraham was justified by his actions because this is the proof that he believed God's word. He acted upon his faith. The writer of Hebrews also saw the faith of Abraham through the connection with the incident with Isaac. Listen to Hebrews 11 and 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. That's his action. And he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Offered is the Greek word anaphero. Anaphero means to offer up, to lift up, or to take up. We all know that the altar is the place of sacrifice. Abraham was justified when he offered up his sacrifice on the altar, but it's also because of his faith in God, because if he had no faith in God, he never would have tried to offer Isaac as an offering. So we realize his faith was in play and his works came into play and they both caused him to do what he did. He proved all of this by his works, being willing to offer the best that he had unto the Lord. In verse 22, it says, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? In this verse, James is actually making a statement. We have it phrased as a question in our King James Version Bibles. In the Greek, it actually says, Thou seest how faith wrought with his works. It's not actually asked as a question, but the translators posed it as a question when they interpreted it from the Greek. James is making an accusation. And he's saying that it's obvious that Abraham's works had something to do with his justification. Abraham could have believed the Lord, but yet stayed at home. Abraham could have believed the Lord and never fulfilled what God desired for him to do concerning Isaac. When James says that when Abraham's faith wrought with his works, he uses a Greek word synergio. Synergio is what we see as wrought in our English versions. This means two or more things work together. They helped each other. They complemented each other. Some people mistakenly believe this means that faith and works fought each other, and they believe this is what ties in with what Paul taught, that faith fights your works and works goes against your faith. But James saw how they fought to work together. By faith and works teaming up, true faith was made perfect, or teleo, which means complete, finished, or fulfilled in the Greek. Our faith reaches its fulfillment by our works that we do. We are made complete in our faith, and this is done by our works. We can define this as faith being in action. James 2 and 23, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. James continues his argument here, and he throws scripture in with it, solidifying his stance. He alludes to Genesis 15 and 6 here, which is quoted by Paul on a few occasions. I'm going to read the Genesis account, and then I'm going to read what Paul said about it in Romans 4 and 3, and then in Galatians 3 and 6 through 8. Genesis 15 and 16, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Romans 4 and 3, for what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Galatians 3 and 6 through 8, he takes it a little bit further. 
even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Once again, we can see that Paul and James are in agreement concerning beliefs. The scripture states that Abraham believed God. That means he had faith in him, which carries the original thought that James started with, that Abraham believed in God. He had faith in God. And so because of his faith that he proved by his works, God imputed this unto him for righteousness. Imputed is a wonderful word in the Greek. It's logizome. Logizome means to count, to credit, to consider, to reckon, and it means to esteem. This was counted to Abraham for righteousness. This was credited to his account for righteousness. This was considered righteousness for him. This was reckoned to him to be righteousness. This was esteemed as righteousness for Abraham. Abraham was declared righteous by God, which mainly came through his faith in God. But if he had never put his faith into action and had works, then we would have seen none of these things happening. And I don't believe that it would have been declared by scripture that he pleased God. Abraham could not have showcased his faith in God without his works. How can you show someone your faith without it being in the works form? In a sense, you could say that without works, Abraham probably would not have been declared righteous either. It's because Abraham believed in God that this belief spurred him into action, and he was called the friend of God. We see this mentioned in a couple of different places, Second Chronicles 20 and 7. Art not thou our God who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? Isaiah 41 and 8, but thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. James has masterfully woven faith and work so tightly knit together that it appears that Abraham had both of them working simultaneously. He not only possessed both faith and works, he used both faith and works. Abraham was benefited by both his faith and his works until God called him his friend. James 2 and 24. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now, James really seems to like driving his point home by reiterating his points often. After stating that faith can't save a man and then saying that faith without works is dead, James now tells us that man cannot be justified by faith alone. We must have works that go along with our faith because they prove our faith. It takes both of these things in order for us to be justified. Going back to the faith chapter in Hebrews 11, verses 33 through 40, we see these people of faith expressing their faith, and they did this by their works. I'm going to read through this, and I want you to just listen to this list of things that these people of faith accomplished. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. Wax valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not except in deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had a trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, a bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, 
of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Everything that the writer of Hebrews listed here is written in action form, showing us that these are the things that these people did. They did them through their faith, but they can only be described as works. If you stop the mouth of a lion, that's a work that was done. If you escaped the edge of the sword, that's a work that was done. If you wax valiant and fight, that is definitely an action that was done. They were tortured, but they didn't accept deliverance. This is things that they did through their faith. They were sown asunder, tempted, slain with us. All of this is action, and it's action that came through their faith. James is telling us if a man wants to be right with God, he must have faith, but he also must have some works to validate his claim of faith. Every other person of faith had works that backed up and proved that their faith was real. Many people get angered by James's choice of wording here, for it seems that he speaks against faith alone, which is one of the main doctrine of several different groups today. These groups say that Paul taught faith alone and that James is trying to destroy that doctrine here. This is definitely false thinking for several reasons. Number one, James wrote his epistle before Paul ever wrote Romans or Galatians. How is he trying to fight against Paul's teachings when he wrote his epistle first? Number two, James and Paul agree in so many cases, this is only a matter of context and syntax. They were writing from different angles, and they were trying to make different points to their very different audiences. Neither one were trying to tear down what the other taught. I don't believe that there's any discrepancy in what either of them say towards the other. James 2 and 25, likewise, also, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? James goes on doggedly as if he's in pursuit of something. He's a stickler for giving evidence to prove his points. He's already built his case numerous ways, but before he moves on to something else, he brings in one more example. He uses a well-known character from the Old Testament who is known for her bravery, but even more so for her faith. He reminds his audience of Rahab the harlot, who he says was justified. He goes on to say that she was justified by her works. She believed in the God of Israel in a sense, for she told the spies that she did. She was still a prostitute at that time, or at least was called a prostitute at that time. So could you say this was saving faith? It was in what she did that proved her faith to these spies, for she placed her life on the line in order to cover for them. She hid them and sent them out another way. We read of her in the famous faith chapter, Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Her faith kept her from perishing, but it was her works that justified her in the sight of God. The Greek word hupodekome, is translated here as received. She received the spies, she hupodekome. It's much closer to welcome. She welcomed them in. She readily welcomed these men whom she could have had killed. She could have turned them in. There's one thing of interest here, and I, I want to share this with you. It's the word messengers. It's the Greek word angelos. Angelos is almost always translated as angels. As a matter of fact, Angelos appears in the Bible 186 times, and only seven of those times is it interpreted as messenger. The other 179 times it's translated as angel. We know that this can't be speaking of literal angels, though. 
James says she sent them out another way, which lets us know that he is definitely referring to the happening that's found in Joshua chapter 2, where these men were from the camp of Israel, and they were sent as spies to spy out the land. They didn't come from heaven. They didn't come down sent from God. These were men that Joshua sent in to spy out the land, but the Bible calls them the same word that they call angels. Why do you reckon James called these spies that Joshua sent to spy out the land angels? Why is it translated as messengers here? In short, they did give a message to Rahab, and technically they acted as angels in that they gave a message and then returned later to keep their word that they gave. So you can actually say they acted as an angel and they did the work of a messenger, which is literally what angels are interpreted as, the messenger of God. James 2 and 26 says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James reverts all the way back to verse 20 once again as he gives his last point and this long-running argument. He uses an analogy that everyone should be able to grasp. He tells them that as the body is dead without the spirit, so faith is dead without works. And we need to keep in mind that the spirit here is equated with breath. In essence, James is saying that if there's no breath in the body, it is a dead body. The Greek word pneuma is often translated interchangeably as wind, breath, and spirit. That's why without the spirit of Christ, we are dead in our sins. James says when you separate faith away from works, it's the same as if you were to separate breath away from the body. You can still have the body. You can still have your faith, but it's dead. You take it away. There's no breath in it. It's a dead body. You take faith and you can have all the faith you want. But if you take works from it or you have no works with it, it's dead faith. You're left with nothing but emptiness and deadness. The word for without here in the Greek is choris, and it means to be separate from. All right. The word here when he says it's dead and left alone, it's the normal word nekros, which means lifeless, useless, and ineffective. If your faith has no works, it's an ineffective faith. If your faith has no works, it's a useless faith. If your faith has no works, it is a lifeless faith. Therefore, it is dead. Let's move on into James chapter 3 at this time. I want to look at verses 1 and 2 before we close this study today. James 3 and 1 says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. It certainly seems that James has shifted gears for sure now when we enter into chapter 3. His argument concerning faith and works now appears to be well behind him as he brings up another discrepancy he's seen in the believers. James has seen a problem that we are all still dealing with today. There's way too many chiefs and not enough Indians. If everyone's a master, who will we be leading? Who are we going to be teaching? Who are we going to be an instructor to? Who are we going to be training? If we're all trainers and there's nobody to train, what, what good are we doing? The word master here is one of great interest, I feel like. It's the Greek word didaskalos. Didaskalos interprets as teacher in John 3 and 2. Let me read you this. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher, a didaskalos, come from God. In Romans 2 and 20, he says, an instructor of the foolish, didaskalos, an instructor. We see it as master here in James 3 and 1, but listen to the way it's used in Luke 2 and 46. And it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors, the didaskalos, both hearing them and asking them questions. All right. In Matthew 7 and 28, 
And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, didaskalos. This describes a person who teaches, one who instructs, one who is a doctor of the law, and one who is an expounder of doctrine. As I have mentioned often throughout this study, many scholars say that James hardly ever references Jesus or his teachings. This is one of those places where he most certainly does. Let's go to Matthew 23 and 8, and it seems to be taken straight from the text here where Jesus taught us that he is our one true master or teacher. But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren." Don't be called master. You've only got one master. And Jesus said, it's me. God has given us the only master we need. So be not many masters. Don't everybody fight to say, hey, I'm the teacher. I'm the instructor. Listen, I'm over you. I'm the one to expound doctrine today. It needs to all come from Christ. God has given us pastors and he's given us teachers according to Ephesians 4 and 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And we understand that he gave us those. We have what we call under shepherds who watch over us, those people who care for us, those who teach us and those who train us. We don't need 18 teachers in a church that has 25 members. You don't need 60 instructors in a church that has 75 to 80 members. You really need Christ leading us, guiding us, and teaching us. And we need those under shepherds who have been placed in that position to watch over our souls to give us the straight word of God from heaven. Everyone can't do that. James says that we know that we're going to receive the greater condemnation if we're guilty of this. Now, that's pretty amazing if you think about it. It's apparently not looked at in a favorable way by James, and he definitely feels that Jesus would feel the same. When he says knowing, we know this, it's the Greek word oida. Oida can be stated and interpreted as understanding in the Greek. It can be interpreted as remembering. All of us need to understand this important statement. Every one of us should remember this principle which James is speaking about. Everyone can't run the church. All of us can't share the leadership role. If we think that we can, we'll begin to fight to become the master instead of a master, and then we're going to receive condemnation. That's another disturbing word here in this verse. We shall receive the greater condemnation. Condemnation is the Greek word krima. Krima is found 28 times in the New Testament. It's translated as condemnation six times, damnation seven times, and as judgment 13 times. It doesn't really matter however you define this word out of these three ways, but I want to tell you however you define it, it's not a good thing. To define crema by these terms is to be condemned, it's to be damned, or it's to be judged. To be condemned is not speaking of your conscience, but it's speaking of being condemned by God in judgment. In other words, James is warning people who try to take power and authority for themselves, you're going to stand in judgment over these things. To me, that sounds like the greater condemnation, if you ask me. Looking at James 3 and 2, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. What seemed to be either a changing of subjects or a disjointed thought in James 3 and 1 now gets linked together with several previously mentioned things. When James says that in many things we offend all, he's tying this back with James 2 and 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. 
He says, if we offend in one point, we're guilty of breaking the whole law. Then he says, if we offend in one point, we offend in all, just like he says here in verse two. Offend is the Greek word pataio. Pataio means to stumble, to trip, or to fall. He says, if you don't offend in your words, if you don't stumble somebody up or trip somebody up or fall because of your own words or because of the words you say about others, if you don't offend your word, your speech, you're a perfect man. I see references back to James 1 and 19 and 1 and 26 here. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak and slow to wrath. Verse 26 says, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. If we would be swift to hear and slow to speak, James said that we would offend much less in our speech and by our words. This man is called a perfect man, one who's complete, one who's made whole. James says this type of man is able also to bridle his whole body if he can bridle his mouth. Once again, we see a link back to something Jesus said in Matthew 12 and 37. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. This certainly ties together well with what James is saying here. It also aligns with James 1 and 26 when he said, If you act religious but fail to bridle your tongue, the religion you claim to have is vain. It's useless. It's worthless. Those who can bridle their tongue are able also to bridle their whole body. Thus, the reasoning behind why James calls them perfect. If you can keep that one area perfect, you'll probably live perfect all of your other areas. I want to spend just a little bit of time here on the phrase, able also to bridle. There's some wonderful things to take away from this. The word able is the Greek word denatos. Denatos is linked with the word dunamis, which we all know is explosive power. Dunatos means to be able. It means to have the power. It means to possess the might. It means to be mighty. Let me give you a couple examples. Acts 18 and 24, and a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. Mighty is the Greek word dunatos. It means to excel in something. Listen to Titus 1 and 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able to by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. You're able to excel because you shut the mouth of the gainsayers. You've got a power or an ability that's God-given. If a person is able to bridle their tongue, that means you possess a mighty ability. You have excelled in something not many people can do, and that's bridling their tongue. The word bridles is a very intriguing word. It's found only twice in the Bible, and both times are here in the book of James. It's a hard word to say, even in the Greek. It's chalinagagio. Chalinagagio means to bridle, to rein in, and to hold in check. Can you hold your tongue in check? Can you rein in your mouth for a moment? Can you bridle that tongue? It comes from two Greek words, chalio, which means to let down, and ago, which means to lead or to bring. Okay, so think about this, putting these two words together. It's to bring down. So that means to have self-control, to keep a rein on, to hold something in check. And that something is your tongue, your lips, your mouth, your speech. Can we reach Christian perfection simply by being able to bridle our tongue? Is that what James is saying? I mean, it sounds like what he's saying here. As always, we begin to look into this and we get to see that James isn't so much teaching if you bridle your tongue, you're perfect in your Christian perfection. Everything is good. You're good. in it. some people believe that a person is never more perfect than the moment he gets saved. They believe we achieve Christian perfection at salvation, and then we begin to fall away from it as we go through our temptations and the present sin that we have to deal with. Others believe that sanctification is Christian perfectionism. 
we are being perfected from the point of sanctification until the time we reach heaven. Still yet, some believe that we are totally perfect at sanctification and we have no need for further growth. There are some who believe Christian perfectionism will not come until we get to heaven and we receive our glorified bodies. I believe it starts at salvation. I believe it endures through our sanctification and it is finished and completed in our glorification when we reach heaven. Therefore, bridling your tongue doesn't bring you to Christian perfection right now, but it is one of the works found within the man of whom has placed his faith in Christ and is following him in all ways possible. Very good teaching, Brother Donnie, on the book of James. Just thinking, uh, James and Paul has a lot of similarities. Neither of these men meant their words. No. All right, we've got a question in here today. Ready for it? Yes, sir. What are we looking at today? Okay, in Matthew 6, Jesus speaks about people having a good eye and an evil eye. Does this have anything to do with lust? Well, I appreciate the question that was sent in, and I can see where the thinking is here, but for a short answer, no. No, it doesn't really have anything to do with lust. Let's go to Matthew 6 and 22 and 23 and look at the setting that has been referenced here, and then I'll make a few comments. Matthew 6 and 22, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Okay, so the assumption is in verse 23, this eye that's evil, it must be lust, and that means your whole body's full of darkness. So lust brings darkness, and therefore how great is that darkness? So you're in a deep, dark sin, so it must be lust. Mm, Not really. Okay, and I'm not saying that lust is not wrong, and I'm not saying that lust is not a dark sin, and I'm not saying how great is the darkness of lust. But when Jesus is speaking here in Matthew 6 and 22 and 23, he's talking about the good eye, the evil eye. He's speaking of something completely different than lust here. The topic Jesus is dealing with is not foreign to us today, but the manner in which he addresses it is somewhat confusing for those of us in our modern era. It's mainly because we don't use those same terms and words that he was using back then. Jesus isn't speaking against lust here. He's talking about generosity versus stinginess. The good eye is the person who is generous with what God has blessed him with. The evil eye is a person who is stingy and will not share or bless the poor with his excess. I understand how a person can look at these scriptures and think the evil eye must be connected with lust or with staring at someone when you're mad at them. I've even heard it described as that. And I I find that quite humorous because the whole context basically just is torn down when you go with either of those lust or somebody that's upset and they're staring at somebody real madly. There's enough scriptures in the Bible that deal with lust that we know it's a sin. We don't have to take this verse out of context and make it something that it isn't. One thing we would do well to remember about this is this. This is included in the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the only messages that Christ ever preached that we have recorded. It was important enough that God wanted us to catch several things in this message, and so it's included in Scripture. If God felt that this was important enough to be addressed in the Bible, in the most important message of the Bible that some believe, we need to take this to heart. He's speaking about being generous and being stingy. Can I ask you, where do you stand today? Are you very generous? Are you a giving person? Do you only give when it benefits you? Do you only give when people can talk about it and praise you for what you gave? Or are you stingy? Do you hold back and say, hey, 
I've got what I've got. I work hard to get it. I ain't giving what I got to nobody. Or are you looking at it and say, hey, I don't have a whole lot. I don't have enough to give. That's still a spirit of stinginess because if you have two, the Bible says you ought to give one to your brother. I understand you can take that and you say, well, you know, I, I got $2. Well, give one of them away, and that's all I've got to live on. I understand you could get technical in some ways. The main point here is what is the condition of your heart, which is the eye of the soul? This is what Jesus is referencing here. If the eye of your soul, which is your heart, nothing describes any condition your soul is in, then your heart does. And so the eye that you look out of your soul with is the heart. And if your heart's stingy, your soul is not right with God. If your heart is generous, then your heart is good with God and it's right with God. All right, Brother Donnie, very good answer. I think that's some questions that we need to ask ourselves. Remember, friends, if you have a Bible question that you'd like an answer to, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We'll do our best to give you a biblical answer to the questions that you send in. We certainly hope you've enjoyed our podcast today, sharing God's Word. But until the next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and tune in with us on Friday. We answer a question sent in from a listener in Alabama about Aaron, the high priest. I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord, for the gospel's sake. Where I go, you've already been there, cause I'm walking in Jesus' name. Well, I'm walking in Jesus' name, I'm going where he bid to go. Dressing and talking like you want me to He's a keeper of my soul I have learned to lean on Jesus And cast on Him my ever concern I'm looking for a home and glory